You are listening to the Dental Industry Insider Podcast, episode number five. Welcome back to another episode of the Dental Industry Insider. Today, we're going to discuss some great ways to establish a positive first impression and how to up-level your impact and influence. Never really do get a second chance to make a first impression. So I've broken down our session today into four main categories. We're going to talk about the power of preparation and some of the things that you can do to set up or to tee yourself up for a outstanding first impression. Second, we will talk about how you can better manage your image in order to create a impression that is consistent with your intention. Next, we'll talk about the value of nonverbal communications since they represent the bulk of the impact and the image that we make. And finally, we'll talk specifically about what to say in those critical first few seconds of a sales call. So that's a pretty comprehensive lineup. We've got a lot of uh, info to share. Let's jump right to it and talk about, first of all, why are impressions so important, not only at home, but also at work? Well, first of all, as a professional, you want others to see and perceive what you want them to perceive in you, not just the impressions that they are able to formulate on their own. You want to have some kind of control over that. In addition, we want to be able to enhance the perception that people have of us. We want them to see us in the best possible light because making or breaking that uh, a negative first impression is extremely difficult to do. And with some people, as we all know, one or two of them, they have very long memories. And uh, first impressions are often difficult if in some cases, if not impossible for people. As sales professionals, trust is the most important ingredient in a lasting relationship, not just in sales, obviously in our personal relationships as well. And establishing a positive first impression really begins the process of trust building. And so we wanna make sure that we are doing everything we can to uh, set ourselves up for that trust to occur sooner than later. In addition, we want our colleagues, our peers, and most importantly, our customers and prospective customers to have an image of us that is one of competence, which leads to their confidence in our abilities, our knowledge, and our expertise. Because it is then that we blend that with the previous point of trust, and we truly become the ultimate goal of a true sales professional is that they become trusted advisors. We want to be able to identify specific attributes or images that we want to have on people, whether it's friendliness or approachability or likability, whatever it is that we want to architect those images uh, in the eyes of others. Obviously, 
establishing a positive first impression opens the doors to new opportunities, not just sales opportunities, but just opportunities for referrals and contacts and for people to really want to lean in to help us become more successful, more effective, and more impactful in our Monday through Fridays. And finally, we want to establish and impressions are so important at work because obviously we want to elevate our image and our status in the eyes of others. We know that if we get off to a, the wrong foot with someone, the relationship may never be completely right again. So first impressions matter whether you want to build lasting trust or whether you simply want to initiate a conversation or an initial contact Establishing a positive first impression is truly the root and foundation of, of causing that to happen. Next, we know with regards to establishing impressions, timing is everything. You may have heard that it only takes three to seven seconds for someone to establish an impression of you. And what's interesting, according to the research, uh, done by Amy Cuddy out of the Harvard Business School, who's she's a so social psychologist. She studied impressions, first impressions for years, and she found that when when we as individuals meet someone for the first time, we not only form one type of impression, we actually form two. And by that, we actually the first thing that we're thinking about is. We're judging how warm and how trustworthy the person is that we're meeting for the first time. We're asking ourselves subconsciously, obviously, what are this, what are this, what is this person's intentions towards me? The second impression or thought that we have when we're meeting someone for the first time is we're asking ourselves, how strong or how competent this person is. Obviously that happens more in a business realm, but it becomes critically important that we do everything we can as business and as sales professionals to be able to set that, the answers up to those two critical questions. What are this person's intentions towards me? We want customers to know we're there to hurt, to help. We're there to be of service when they are thinking about how strong, how competent is this person, we know that they're going to be making comparisons between how we occur to them and how we occur in comparison to the other representatives and other individuals that they deal with. And we want to make sure that we are doing some things just a little bit differently so that we can set ourselves apart in a positive way. Are you aware that according to Cuddy's research, she's shown that those two impressions of both trustworthiness and confidence account for 80 to 90% of the first impressions that people make about us. And for those of us that are paid to persuade, these attributes, as you know, are critical to influence and persuasion. Well, it's the essence of successful selling. So each of us would be very well served if we'll take this time today and we'll continue the journey and the discovery about finding out what it really takes to ensure that we are making the positive impressions that we intend to make.
every minute in that first few seconds of an interaction with our prospective buyers must play a strategic role in driving our objectives. And I'm not so sure that that always happens in my observation as I've worked in the field and as I've worked on the phones with representatives. I think that we use those first few seconds in thought to as a warm-up time rather than having it all dialed in and being completely prepared for the initial few seconds that are now that we've learned are so critical. So speaking of preparation, let's talk about the power of preparation. Well, the, the first thing that we want to talk about is it's very important that you identify your intentions. Image management is the process of ongoing proactive process of evaluating and controlling the impact of your appearance on yourself, on others, and on, most importantly, the achievement of our goals. It's actually the science and the art of identifying our intentions and, and, and orchestrating them in a way that provides this framework that all of the elements that go into image management, like grooming and clothing and body language and etiquette and vocal communications, all come together in a beautiful symphony that creates our image. So I ask you, does your image convey the message that you desire and intend with your customers? How does your image translate via the phone or in person on those first meetings? Have you ever thought about what it really means to be considered quote, well-dressed in or by American or North American standards? What about being considered well-dressed on a global business scale? So I want to ask you, is your image appropriate for the industry, the company, and the customers that you call on? Only you can really answer that question honestly and in a way that, that you can cause it to spur you on to raising your own bar on your image just a little bit higher. Perhaps you prefer to be seen as set apart or a little different than your colleagues or the other individuals that are calling on your customers. Well, how specifically would you like to be heard or to be seen? What is it that you can do to manipulate or to adjust your approach in a way that powerfully impacts the image that you are representing? One of the other things that we can do as part of our preparation is to turn off our cell phone. Yep. Nothing kills a great first impression faster than when someone's cell phone is ringing or beeping or, or buzzing. Cell phones interruptions are rude, and you, as the professional, 
need to control these type of interruptions. It's not only seen by customers as disrespectful, but it's also seen as sloppy. And it also demonstrates, it sends a message that you were less than totally prepared for the interaction that you were in the midst of having with the customer or the potential uh, prospect that you're dealing with. And that is not the behavior of a consummate professional. And oh, by the way, if when the phone rings, don't even think about looking at your phone after it rings. Responding to a text message or answering the phone if it rings, that would add compounded insult to injury and further damage your image and lower the impression that you're attempting to build up. The next thing we can do in preparation is to be on time. I wouldn't have thought at this stage of the game with all of the resources that we have to manage our time and to keep us moving in the right direction every single day that we had to still talk about time, but in fact we do. We know that according to our customer surveys that over 65% of salespeople are late for the phone call appointments or the in-office visits that they commit to on a regular basis. And as we all know, there is nothing that kills your image faster than you being late for particularly that initial appointment. But obviously, every appointment, even if it is just a few minutes or two, degrades and lowers your image and puts you in the category of just like everybody else. Give yourself more time. Give yourself, in fact, more than enough time. Allow for the traffic delays or allow for the interruptions that are inevitably going to happen prior to you making that phone call that you've committed to. But here's the thing, always be on time. In addition to the preparation that we can do to establish a positive first impression, it's important that we manage our image, that we take active participation in, in controlling the image that we can that we convey to others in the world at work and in our personal lives a couple of ways we can do this powerfully number one analyze your attire well what does that mean well we all know that suit or that outfit that just makes us feel fantastic in fact if you're anything like me you have a couple of pieces in your wardrobe that when you put them on you feel like you could go through walls and that you could climb tall buildings at a single bound we know that what you wear can affect and does affect the way you think the way you feel and that obviously impacts the way you act and the way you behave and here's the thing all of that adds up to impact the way that others react or respond to you. And this is having a huge impact on your performance in sales and ultimately in the results that you create. Another thing that we can do is we can grade our grooming. Yep, we're gonna talk about grooming. Does your hair and makeup, if you're a woman, project the image that you really want to pro project? 
a University of North Carolina uh, study, actually it was Elon University, had done a study in their economics department and concluded, now check this out, that increased grooming time has a large positive effect on minority men and actually has a negative effect on women and had no effect on white males. Let me be specific. Minority men who spent at least 80 minutes a day on grooming. Now, I don't know too many men that would spend 80 minutes or more on grooming, but apparently they're out there. They actually were motivated once they saw the data. It, they were this effort actually resulted in a consistent 4% increase in their average earnings. While women, interestingly enough, who spent 90 minutes or more on grooming saw an average decrease of 3.4% in earnings. I think that is so fascinating that grooming can have such a big impact. Let me give you a couple of more maybe re uh, related uh, examples of faux pas uh, around grooming. Are you aware that a, uh, a wrinkled shirt or not shaving or heading into the office with a tie but maybe a loosened tie actually subtly but powerfully Im uh, implies that you may not be fully committed to your job? We may not consciously think about that when we see someone with a wrinkled shirt. We may just think he's just had to rush in the morning or particularly if it is a consistent uh, image that this person is uh, reflecting. We begin to get the message that his preparation in the morning is rushed, that his care of himself as well as his clothes really is not something of priority. Whether or not it's a priority to you, your grooming matters. It sends a powerful message. Excessive grooming with women, particularly in the office, demonstrates that perhaps she is perhaps a bit more focused on her appearance than maybe the job at hand. And a little bit too much makeup in the business world actually indicates that she might be more interested in a mate rather than her career. So let's talk about a couple of simple, inexpensive ways that we all can upgrade our image. First of all, the, the, the global comment is we can upgrade the way that we occur to others by simply presenting a polished look. That obviously is going to vary from person to person, but the idea of striving towards a polished, a professional, a buttoned up, if you will, look is, is what we really want to strive for. In addition, according to uh, Sherry May Masonville, who has actually written a book called Casual Power, How to Power Up Your Nonverbal Communication and Dress Down for Success, says that getting a proper haircut is one of the least expensive but most powerful ways that we can upgrade our image. Women, the bottom line is less is more. Less makeup, less perfume, less jewelry. Obviously, we don't want to overdo it because sending a signal that we're more interested in being a fastinisha over being a professional is not the message that we want to communicate. 
We may think that it is part and parcel with taking care of ourselves and presenting ourselves well into the world, but if people can smell you three, three cubicles away, you're probably overdoing it. Men and women should take note of the condition of their shoes. Shoes, if they are scruffy, if they are old, if they are tattered in any way, are a direct reflection of one's personal grooming and even suggests a level of personal hygiene care. On that note, these four main points didn't hit uh, the study that was done uh, by Sherry Ma uh, Masonville, but uh, there's another aspect that I just wanted to share because I notice it so much among dental professionals, and that is dirt underneath one's fingernails. You know, in our profession, we use and demonstrate with our hands a lot. Our hands get a lot of airplay, as they say. We're holding things, we're presenting things, whether it's literature or tiny intricate pieces and parts to our products. We need to pay attention to our hands. We'll talk a little more about the power of hands in a little bit. All right. Another thing that we can do is we can take a nod, we can take a, a clue, if you will, from what industry norms are present about dressing and uh, about what the standards are that, that seem to be typically acceptable by our customer base. Well, we know that the dental industry is, well, I would say a, but a bit more upper middle ground when it comes to being conservative as compared to the ultra conservative industries like financial services, accounting, government, and law. And then of course, we're perhaps uh, a, a, little, uh, a little more conservative than those that are considered to be less conservative industries like hospitality, public relations, advertising, or maybe even the beauty or fashion industry where, well, any image goes. Probably the most important nod that we can take or clue about what we want to think about is we want to plan our attire, plan our image from the customer or the buyer's point of view. It only makes sense that we would plan uh, to present ourselves to the persons or persons that we want to influence from their point of view. So what do we know about dental consumers? Are they conservative or are they edgy? Are they traditional or are they trendy? Are they extroverted or are they introverted? Based on your experience, think about the answers to that and how might that translate into how you would address your attire to really reflect a much more impressive impression in, in getting dressed in the morning. Would you wear a tie or no tie? How about a bow tie or a traditional tie? What does a bow tie say about a man and the image that he's trying to convey? How about a dress or a golf shirt? For you, what do you think is going to elevate the perception that you deliver to a doctor that sees you in person? 
As a woman, would you wear closed or open-toed shoes? What is that a reflection of? Would we wear dress slacks or perhaps khakis? Some of this is personal interpretation, but as I've mentioned, I want to strongly encourage you to not think from your own need to demonstrate a personal style or to gain attention to stand out amongst the crowd, but to think about it from the customer or from your buyer's point of view. Another area that we can look to for some clues about how to proceed in preparing and dressing ourselves and our image in the morning is to work to complement your company. You know, whether or not you're aware of it or not, uh, your company employee manual certainly define a dress code, but what we're talking about here is we're talking about the nuance that your company culture has created as a standard of attire that's become sort of the look, if you will, in and around your office or in and around the uh, meetings that you have whenever you all come together in a company to present yourself to the marketplace. As you might expect, representatives from the larger, more structured dental companies like Densply, 3M, Kerr and Patterson, well, they're going to tend to display a more uniform, conservative, maybe buttoned up or a suited image that is more consistent with their organizational cultures than it might be for a smaller firm. Employees of smaller or emerging dental companies, well, they might successfully pull off a more casual but still a conservative look and still present a polished image. For example, can you get away with a sport jacket as opposed to wearing a full-on suit? We know intellectually that our image is everything in sales, so it's important that we dress the part as if we were in a play. Consider your look to your pers prospective customers. Consider what they will find uh, tasteful or appreciate because after all when we're in front of a buyer it really is showtime. Another area that we can consider as we're managing our image is actually the region that we are uh, working or the, the customers that we're calling on. Also the role that we have and the responsibilities that we have. You know, I grew up in the conservative northeast of Pittsburgh, and specifically, I learned there that tailored, conservative, uh, even being on the brink of preppy, spelled professionalism, class, and quality. And while I was working in that market as a dental implant specialist, I was recognized as being just those things and actually was quite successful. So I think that my image was rewarded in a lot of ways until I took my look to the South. I quickly discovered that my starched buttoned up image was seen by the oral surgeons, the periodontists and the dentists in that area as being uptight and stuffy. Well, if you know me, you know I am anything but stuffy. It created an unnecessary distance between me and the dental specialist that I ardently wanted to serve. 
I knew that I had to dump the Yankee uniform if I was ever going to connect with customers in that market. A good rule of thumb that you can use if you are new to the, an industry or to a company is to err on the side of conservative versus making bold statements about your image or about your clothes. If you're feeling fuzzy or fearful about what buttoned up or buttoned down really means in the scheme of all things work-related, then you might want to use a personal shopper or a stylist that are often offered as compliments of major retailers like Macy's, Nordstrom's, and even Men's Warehouse. They are great resources to help you upgrade your wardrobe and your overall look. I'm sure that you're aware of this next point, but I'm really fascinated by the research that's been done around how colors convey meaning and message. And I think we need to acknowledge that as we are dressing for our grand performance called a day uh, in front of our customers. Are you aware, for example, that red has connotations of sexuality, vivaciousness, or someone in charge? Perhaps for a, a very conservative industry like dentistry, with the, the majority of dentists being friendly but not really bold or daring, perhaps red may be, well, a little much. Blue, on the other hand, induces tranquility and relaxation. It's no surprise when people feel most comfortable in blue clothing colors is because just of the mood that that color creates. Black, well, black tends to be most people's default clothing color, which is understandable because it's easy to wear, goes with almost everything, and well, black is elegant, black is formal, and Black is slimming. Black can also have a negative connotation. It's interesting, this the, a study was done at the University of Florida that found that hockey players wearing black jerseys, think of them, think of them, were more likely to be penalized for aggressive fouls than those wearing white jerseys, possibly because black is associated with being in an aggressive mood. Well, as a uh, a hockey fan myself and a Pittsburgh Penguins fan, uh, now I know that we're going to pay much closer attention when we've got our black shirts on. Green, last of all, if you want to exude trustworthiness and a positive emotional health, well, make your clothing colored green. Green offers a subtle and a fresh image. It stands for nature and ecology and really is just bottom line, a friendly color. There's more insights on, on color and the message that it conveys that I wanted to share with you. So I've prepared a handout that will be available with the uh, show notes uh, after this program is over. Next, we must acknowledge the value of nonverbal communications. The first area relative to nonverbal communication is, is around group settings when we are meeting people for the first time. In the United States and probably North America, 
Appropriate distances demonstrate respect for personal space. And in the U.S., 18 to 48 inches is generally considered the personal zone appropriate for establishing rapport. And we know it when somebody is within that zone, don't we? We can almost feel their breath or, ooh, just it just is a negative situation. So we want to make sure that as we are meeting people, we are not violating that 18 to 48 inch personal zone. The magic of mirroring. You know, this is probably one of the most untapped, most powerful tools that sales professionals have in their arsenal. Now, if you make your living primarily via the telephone, don't count yourself out because there are some fantastic ways we can use the magic of mirroring to our advantage over the phone as well as in person. When your intention is to promote a sense of comfort, trust, and to facilitate a dialogue, which is the essence of sales, we need to sensitively, I emphasize, mimic the customer or the prospect's posture, their gestures, their voice tonality, and tempo. The more that we're able to do that, the more of those positive emotions like trust and comfort occur or are created. It's kind of like, if you ever watch Dancing with the Stars, well, the better contestants, mirroring is just like that. It's analogous to two people dancing in perfect rhythm and harmony. It's important while we're talking about mirroring and nonverbal communication that as the person who is leading the conversation and wanting to be the influential person in a a, a sales discussion or a, a dialogue with a prospective customer, it's important that we minimize any distracting or unnecessary movements that might disrupt the communication and level of engagement with the person that we're speaking to. For example, shifting in our seats, tapping our feet, clicking a pen, adjusting our glasses, Anything that we can do to minimize those movements is going to allow the person that we're communicating with to more fully become present and engaged in the conversation. You know, someone once said the most important part of communication is hearing what isn't being said. And I believe that to be true. Your silent body language speaks volumes, often very loudly, about who you are and what you're about. It, the studies have been done around the impact of ver verbal versus nonverbal communication, and most experts agree that our nonverbal communication, that is our posture, our facial expressions, the gestures that we make, the eye contact that we have, it, it represents about 55 to 65% of our communication. It's the reason we're talking about how to say it and rather than what to say first, because it's such an important part of our communication. Nonverbal communication is the outward reflection of a, per a person's emotional condition. Therefore, it's important that we effectively communicate 
our unspoken word by nonverbal body language so that people can have better connections with us. We can use our facial expressions to create an impact. We can use it to make a buyer feel comfortable. We can use our, our facial expressions and our gestures to demonstrate that we are comfortable or that we are a warm, welcoming, friendly person. Just think about a smile, for example, how that not only boosts your own mood, but it, how it reflects and changes the clear demeanor of a person that you actually smile at. Hands that hinder. Well, <laughs> are you quick to assume that someone wants to shake your hand when you have a first meeting with them? You know, a handshake is supposed to establish a physical anchor to the forthcoming discussion or dialogue that you have with that individual. However, considering the, the background or the um, the, the various cultural differences among people all over the world and was, we're seeing more and more of that emerging into our industry, it may, by forcing people or by gesturing to people to shake our hands, may actually send the wrong message. So we have to be sensitive to the cultural differences. In addition, we want to be able to provide people as part of our uh, commitment to nonverbal communication, communication, we want to give people our undivided attention. You know, Bill Clinton, uh, former president, is known as a master networker. People say that you can actually feel his charisma when he walks into a room. And allegedly, if you're in a room with Bill Clinton and he is talking to you, his focus and his attention is so directed in your to you that you literally feel like you are the only person in the room and that you are the most important person in the room to him at that moment. Obviously, Bill Clinton has used this power, this tool, to influence him to the top position in this country, and you can use it effectively as well. Use the attention and focus that you provide to people in a way that will yield greater buy-in from others, it will influence them more powerfully and more quickly if you provide it to them. Posture and positioning, well, <laughs> we all have recognized that posture sends very clear messages with people. Look at this image that we're displaying here. The individual representing bad posture looks like he's kind of in a bad mood or maybe a little lost or maybe unsure of what it's like to really stand. I don't know. But the one on the right that shows his good posture, clearly he looks like a a balanced, a relaxed, and frankly, a pretty competent person. And this is just one illustration of how posture and positioning can make a very big difference on the, on the messages that we communicate. One other point around positioning is, are you aware that when you lean back or lean away or lean sideways when you're with someone, you're actually conveying a tone of disinterest. 
All right, gestures that jive. Well, in North America, finger pointing is considered to be negative, authoritative in position. It sends a message that can appear as threatening. The consequence of using a single pointed finger, uh, while it seems like a, uh, a simple gesture, it, what it causes is for people to actually listen less in that they feel more intimidated or even feel threatened by the person waving their finger. If you don't believe me that that's really true, go and wag your finger at a teenager and see how far you get. <laughs> a single index finger pointed up in some countries and cultures around the world is actually considered quite offensive. So when you feel dumb, use the thumb. Always be aware of the cultural differences that many gestures can have and what their meanings are as you are interacting with people of different cultures. It absolutely can make or break your communication even before you say a single word. Well, we've all heard that laughter is the best medicine and I believe that for sure that it's true. Researchers, of course, wanted to get to the bottom line as to whether or not there was really truth around this old axiom. And interestingly enough, they, they found out that laughter increases EEG activity to the left brain. It actually increases and releases endorphins or opiates that have an analgesic and an immune-boosting effect while improving the oxygen uptake and the vasodilation of the peripheral vessels of our face. <laughs> Let's face it, you guys, everybody needs to laugh more. As adults, are you aware that most, most of us laugh only about 15 times a day compared to kids who laugh about 400 times a day? We all need to act. We all need to laugh more. So let's talk about what to say. It's the last piece of our puzzle. It is an important piece, but really our experience and the research wholly supports the truth that what we say is far less important than how we say it. If people are deciding how warm, how trustworthy, how confident, and therefore how competent we are within the first three to seven seconds of an interaction, well then my message in coaching to you is those first three to seven seconds of a sales presentation or a sales call have to be planned, prepared, and you better be poised and ready to go. Now that you know better, you can do better. I've listened to hundreds and observed hundreds of reps navigating those first few seconds of a call, and honestly, I'm sorry to say, it ain't pretty. People stutter and stammer. They uncomfortably force themselves to sound cheery and upbeat, all of which is completely transparent as cellophane to the listener. And the dance, well, it ain't happening. It's more like a stumble of left of two left feet. The goal? To receive the buyer as if it was the beginning of a well-rehearsed waltz. To move fluidly and skillfully through those first three steps of 
the introduce that we're about to talk about. How does the first few seconds of your calls help or hinder your image and ultimately the impressions that you create? Have you ever listened to a recording or multiple recording over time of yourself to hear or to see yourself accurately? I know that can be difficult and maybe even in some cases painful, but I really believe that having that information is extremely valuable in helping us prepare to be successful and more successful as we navigate through those first few seconds of interaction. So a couple of things we want to do is we want to sync our salutation, the very beginning part of our, of our, our conversation. Based on all of my observations, I've assembled this short list of good-to-go greetings, things that we need to adopt and to do to avoid um, making uh, a poor impression within those first three to seven seconds. One of the things is to by sounding overly friendly. Let's face it, even if you've been in the business you know, for many years, those first few seconds, particularly if it's someone that we are calling for the first time, they're uncomfortable. And so how we unconsciously try to overcome that discomfort is do we try to sound overly friendly or we sound too familiar. In some personality and people, they go the opposite direction. They come off very formal. Hello, this is sounding very staid. And in other cases, there are people that frankly just sound too darn scripted. You know the type. The minute you sit down for dinner at night at 6.30, you answer the phone and you have someone that isn't in communication with you. They're reading a script and you can tell. So while I am a strong advocate of using word tracks or bulleted uh, points that we want to use to help us stay on track in our communications, uh, as part of our preparations, I do not believe in scripts. And it's because of exactly this reason. Our tendency, our brain is to tend to want to read them to our customers rather than engage in a conversation. One of the other most common mistakes that I see in initial greetings is that people speak too quickly. My coaching around this is slow down. One of the most powerful ways of you Finding out if you are someone that makes this mistake is to listen to several recordings of yourself. You'll hear your speed in comparison to the person you're talking to and be able to gauge whether or not you are indeed adjusting or modulating your tone, your voice, your pace to that of the person that you're talking to. And that's the other mistake coming up is the vocal variety lacks a modulation, lacks a variety, an intonation that is just the same. And therefore the person sounds very monotone and no, there is no inflections that go on to make a point or create color to the communication. One of the other big mistakes that I see is most of the receptionists in our industry have been trained to answer the telephone with a warm greeting, but also to share their first name. If you are given their first name, I strongly encourage you to use it. It is a much greater way of warming up the conversation. 
Now, you might ask, do I ask her name if she doesn't give it to me? Well, you can certainly do that, but I would not ask for the receptionist's name until you have completed your personal introduction, which we go through in another program. Finally, one of the other big mistakes is that people spend way too much time in frivolous chit-chat in the early part of a call, frankly, burning up the few minutes that the doctor or the account has actually uh, allocated to interact with you. And when they finally get to the point where they transition to the, quote, presentation or demonstration, there's very little effective time to do a very good job. Next, introduce. I want to give you the three main steps of introduce because they really combat all of the major mistakes that we see not only in, the, in our industry, but they address the, the primary needs or requests as to what dental consumers have told us how they build a strong positive first impression. So if you don't have a pen in your hand, I want you to please pick it up. I want you to take down these three points because really introduce is literally as easy as one, two, three. The first part of introduce, this is the beginning of any presentation, any sales approach, is to thank them for their time. This demonstrates that you are not like other vendor representatives. By thanking them first, you acknowledge that a value exchange of time, the doctor's, and knowledge, yours, is about to occur. And this will absolutely set you apart and tee you up for the important anticipation that the doctor or the buyer needs to have in order to ready themselves for your conversation or presentation. <clears throat> Next, outline number two, outline the agenda. Tell them what you're gonna tell them. Well, more specifically, I think we should outline the agenda. Well, we wanna say something like, Doctor, what I'd like to do is, is um, ask you a few questions to learn a little bit about what you're doing around your uh, temporization process. And then I'd be happy to introduce some of the uh, uh, products that we have that seem to be appropriate for you that might improve the results that you're getting if in fact there's even an opportunity there. And then at that point we can decide how best to proceed. That is what outlining the agenda sounds like. It is a few seconds long and yet it elegantly demonstrates that you are prepared. It helps keep you on track. It sends a message to the customer, look, this conversation is not going to go on for half a day. I'm prepared. I've got my game plan in order. And as long as you take the next step, which is step three, and that is seek approval to proceed, you are ready to go and off to begin those critical diagnostic questions that are going to lead you to understand really what the customer's true uh, situation is and identify exactly how you can be of service. All right, that's a very important one. So I really hope you got all those three points uh, and I'll just review them for a second and that is thank them for their time. Number two, outline your agenda. And number three, seek approval. I just want to give you two more very quickly. Uh, avoid jumping the gun. 
And this really speaks to, again, a very uh, overwhelming amount of feedback that we've gotten from, from dental consumers, and that is that we as a sales community are people that we immediately after we complete the, if you will, rapport building or the chit chat, we get into our data dump, our product pitch. We show up and we throw up. Whatever you want to call it, 80% of dental salespeople jump into the product pitch. And that is a mistake. It's interesting, and I just noticed this as I was preparing for this program, if 80% according to our research of reps actually jump to the product pitch and doctors say that is not the best approach. They would, they want to have you understand their situation by asking some questions about where their challenges are and where their satisfaction points are about the products they're using now. That if 20% remain, isn't it interesting that the 20% that remain are those that are at the top of the sales ladder. So that would be my reason and rationale for why slow down, ask the diagnostic questions up front, set yourself, tee up the conversation with the three-step introduce process. And last of all of the steps that we've talked about, this last step really is one that I think is the capstone for all of them. And that is leave everybody that you interact with better than how you found them. Because you know what? In the end, it's our communications, whether it's spoken or unspoken. It's the image that we convey that really is all that we have in establishing the impression that we make in the world. I believe that your smile is your logo. Your personality is your business card and how you leave others feeling after being with you, it eventually becomes your unique trademark. Thank you guys for investing your time with me today. I'm so grateful for this.